to the Constructionist Podcast hosted by Caleb. Just as we grow gardens and build buildings, God is building you through the renewing of your mind. The sufficiency of the scriptures is paramount in your journey and every week Caleb will challenge you to make them a central part of your life and worldview. Join us now as we explore the world through the ancient lens of God's word. Today on the Constructionist Podcast, we're out for a walk. So you might hear crunching under my feet of leaves or me possibly slightly out of breath because I'm sort of walking up and down a hill. But I think it's nice to have conversations like this just sort of out and about in the real world because this is exactly what Deuteronomy tells us when it explains how parents... One of the things that they should be doing as they're raising their kids is using opportunity to talk about how the world around us is a reflection of the truth that God has put in the scriptures. And that, in many ways, really was the mindset of society in the early church. It was sort of the underlying metaphysic of the early church for hundreds of years after the New Testament was written, which is closer to the actual biblical view of looking at the world around us, that everything is put here by God, the creator, and it is a huge, intricate, interrelated system of life and dynamic movement and interplay that allows us humans to live here on the earth and be a part of it as stewards, which is exactly what God tells Adam in Genesis. So being out for a walk like this is more than just sort of enjoying the sunshine and the trees around us. It actually has, there's a metaphysical foundation to it all. And I think that's something that I hope we can talk about a bit more in these constructionist podcasts because our goal is to think like the scriptures tell us to think. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ. So what does that mean exactly, having the mind of Christ? Well, one thing that it means on a foundational level is to have the same metaphysic that Jesus had. Jesus lived and breathed and walked on this earth in a particular culture and in a particular society with a particular way of thinking and viewing the world. And because he had that particular way of thinking and viewing the world, it affected how he spoke and interacted with the people around him. And that is certainly true of us today. More and more and more, I am getting to where I believe that everything comes down to interpretation. Everything is about hermeneutics. And when I say everything, I almost mean basically everything. Because what is hermeneutics? It's how we take in everything around us and then how we then respond back to it meaningfully or or what we understand it to mean if i can put it that way and so on one level hermeneutics is about reading literature and trying to determine what that literature means and what would a valid interpretation of that literature be but nowadays in the last 30 to 40 to 50 years so much has been thrown out the window because of underlying metaphysical assumptions and presuppositions that uh, it's becoming a greater and greater, more, it's becoming a, a, a greater task. It's, it's almost more of a difficult task, you could say, because you got to weed your way through this underlying mindset of 
anything goes, in effect. And so we're beyond now this modernist, modernistic way of looking at things that is a bit mechanical, although that still is there. But it's a mechanic, it's a mechanan, mechanicalistic system that is completely inundated by randomness and, uh, atoministic as in individualistic views of looking at things. So my truth and your truth might look completely opposite to each other, but it's okay. It's, it's our truth. It's your truth and it's my truth. And we're good with that. We can live that way. Society cannot operate that way, ultimately. So I'm saying all this to say, to ask you this question is what do you eat? Or I could also say, do you eat? would be the more foundational question. Do you eat food on a regular basis? So the stupid answer is, well, yeah, of course, everybody does. You'd be dead if you didn't eat. It's a rarity that people deny themselves food. It's kind of a daily thing that the body craves something to eat. And so along these lines of an underlying metaphysic of the world around us is put into place by God... And we as humans are in this world operating in a fashion that God expects us to operate. God built into our bodies a need for food. So we're not like snakes that can eat, I don't know, a mouse and be fine for three or four days because their metabolism is so much slower and they're cold-blooded and that kind of... um, nutrient then lasts them much longer. We're a different makeup. Typically, humans eat two to three or four times a day. Or if you're a hobbit, you've got, what, breakfast and then second breakfast and then 11 Z's and then lunch and then after lunch snack and, you know, goes on and on like that. So what do we do about that? We need to understand this on a number of levels. So I'm asking you the question, do you eat? I would assume your answer would be, yes, I eat. So because I eat, what does that mean? That means I take in physical sustenance that hopefully I'm enjoying, but sometimes I eat just for energy as well. I need to be active in something. You know, how many people grab a cup of coffee and be like, I just need to wake up. Let me drink a cup of coffee. So, or they, if they're going to go run a marathon or something like that, or they're athletes, they're not necessarily eating for pleasure. They're eating for a different kind of pleasure, a higher pleasure, but they're eating for maximum physical performance. So that means they're not going out to all the fast food, junk food places. They're not eating piles of cake and ice cream and stuff like that. They're eating things that allow their body maximum physical performance because they want to win the race when it comes right down to it. Now, do you eat? The answer is yes. The next question is, why do you eat? Do you eat just to stay alive? Do you eat sometimes for pleasure? Here in America, just a couple days ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving. That is a time, a lot of people call it Turkey Day, but it is a time where the vast majority of people are eating for pleasure. They're out to have a good solid meal and stuff themselves. So that's always the joke around Thanksgiving and Christmas time is people stuff themselves. So they're eating for pleasure. They're not eating for uh, any sort of specific health benefit or anything like that. They just want to enjoy the food and the company and the fellowship. So I ask you the question, do you eat? The answer is yes. Then I ask you what manner in which you are eating. Why are you eating? Are you snacky? 
So you just stuff Cheetos in your face because it's the nearest thing to you. Something like that. Or are you a vegan? Or are you a carnivore? Are you one of these guys that's like, I can't eat a meal unless it has a dead animal involved in it. So there's different philosophies to eating as well. Now, I'm saying all that to say that the Bible uses eating as a example, as an illustration, as a teaching tool for our spiritual intake, for what we eat spiritually. Now, our primary passage on this would be something like uh, Exodus 16 with the manna, or perhaps Daniel chapter 1 where Daniel refused to eat the delicacies of the king's table because he didn't want to be defiled, it says. But in Exodus, it's about manna. God sent manna as a food, as a nutrient for their physical bodies, but he sent it to test them to see what their inner man or inner self, how they would, how it would respond to the situation before them. So let's start with manna. Manna means, what is it? <laughs> That's its literal definition. So when you read the text in Exodus 16 and it says that the manna came, then the response from the people was, is, what is this? Well, that's what they were saying. They were saying manna. And so that ended up being the name of this food item. It's what is it? But it was sustaining. It kept them going temporarily for the week. And then on the sixth day, they had to collect twice as much so that on the seventh day when there was no manna falling because it was the Sabbath, they would have enough. But otherwise, it was always something that would rot the next day if they held it over. Manna was designed to be given on a daily basis for that specific moment in time, for that specific need, and then when necessary, it would survive when there wasn't a supply. So that's how manna works. And God says he gave it to test them so that he would be able to know ultimately what was in their hearts. What was their attitude toward his gift to them? Now in Daniel, he was in a foreign land. He wasn't like the Israelites setting out on this quest for a new land. Daniel had been taken out of that promised land because of sin and disobedience of the people. And he was dumped in Babylon. But because he was so clever with all of his other buddies and was well-educated because he was a member of the king's household, then he was put in a school where he would be trained to be one of the king of Babylon's advisors or, or you know, palace people or whatever. Now, the thing with Daniel is he became a eunuch. They, they eunuchized him is what they ended up doing. So that way he would not be able to, um, they basically castrated him so that he could function without the hormonal effects that men have, testosterone and things like that. Uh, and also as a protection against their, the Babylonian women and because he was working in the king's palace and things like that. So um, anyway, it does explicitly say that he, the Bible does say that he was a eunuch in, in the, the house of Babylon. So he was not able to have any children of his own, but he left a legacy of spiritual children behind him. So again, there, there's this, it, there, it was a cutting off of the physical, but a, a exponential expanding or multiplication of the spiritual. So we must bear this in mind when we're reading the scripture, 
that God created all things around us. So the fact that I'm walking down this road right now, uh, it, it's a it's a reflection of God's creative creative creation, if I can put it that way. So here I am breathing, walking, talking, communicating with you in a physical world, but these things have spiritual ramifications to them, spiritual activity, because I am using words, and so my words are conveying an idea from me to you. Now, in the scriptures, we're told, like I said, that we are to have the mind of Christ. So our mind is the beginning point of words, of ideas, of thoughts, of a line of reasoning, of logic, things like this. But there must be an input in order for the output to be of the Lord. So when the manna came, the manna was there to test them. It came from the Lord, but how then was their response to it? So the problem then, as we read the rest of the book of Exodus and into Numbers and that, is the Israelites had a real problem with this manna. There were times where it would come up as a sticking point for complaint. And they would say, oh, the food in Egypt was way better. And oh, this manna is just terrible. And oh, it'd be nice if we had something else to eat, like meat, something like that. They were discontent with the nourishment that God provided for them. They got tired of it. Now, the the funny thing about this is, and I say funny, but it, it is, it's just sort of ironic, I guess. Today, we have a Bible. Now, if you follow the teaching of manna through the scriptures, it's referred to as bread from heaven. And Jesus talks about himself as being the bread of life. So you eat his body, you drink his blood. This is what Genesis, not Genesis, John 6 is about where Jesus talks about partaking of his life, of his body and his blood. So there's a relationship then between the manna and the person of Jesus and also the word of God scriptures. So the scriptures are entirely man's physically written word, but they are entirely inspired by the spirit. So thus they become, they are the word of God. They are God's scriptures. They are God's will. They are God's law. They are God's uh, precepts and his ordinances and his testimony and all these different things. The scriptures are that. But the thing is, is we've had the scriptures now for pushing 2,000 years. We've had the complete canon, both Old and New Testaments, or First and Second Testaments, uh, Old Covenant, New Covenant. We've had these things for such a long time now that I think in many people's minds, they've become bland, They've become dusty old letters. They've become something that, ugh, again, why do we have, oh, I remember hearing a guy once say to me, it's like, oh, no, I don't like Bible studies. I mean, this guy went to church and claimed to be a Christian, so oh, I don't like Bible studies. Why, to, to denigrate the Bible is to denigrate the person of Jesus Christ, and that's a, that's a bad position to be in. It's unhelpful. It's dangerous, actually. So like manna, the Bible has become in our minds and our expectations this kind of, ugh, the Bible? That's just, I mean, it's kind of confusing and complicated and it doesn't really make sense. And I mean, reading it's a little bit of a drag and what I have to, it's not exciting. It's not a movie. Oh, why do I have to, there's no pictures. So it's, that's the way it is, but this is God. What does it say about Jesus in Isaiah 53? It says he came with 
no outward appearance that he would be considered handsome or pleasant or attractive in any way. It was his words and his manner that was used to attract people. So all these films you see that are trying to depict the Gospels, like the hot one right now is The Chosen. I mean, Jesus is six foot two, and he's handsome, and he's got this nice smile and all this stuff. It's like, no, Jesus was probably not a... He certainly could not have been a physically attractive person. There's a description of the Apostle Paul that also in early church history is not very attractive at all. He was just sort of this short guy that possibly just had a huge nose and just, there was really nothing about him that you would say, oh, he's a handsome individual. God uses the foolish things of the world to dumbfound what the world considers wise. So in that sense, the Bible is very powerful because we look at it on one level and say, ah, it's the same book. I've, we've, this thing has been studied for thousands of years and all it does is cause conflict and controversy and things like that. Well, you're reading the wrong perspective. You're hearing the wrong perspective. What you need to do is stop and say, okay, who out there has actually grabbed hold of this book and lived it out? You get guys like uh, D.L. Moody who went by the principle that the world has yet to see what God will do through one man that totally gives himself to him. What about Reese Howells, who prayed his way with his Bible school through the World War II in Wales, and he said, I'm willing to die to demonstrate that this book is true, and what it says is a reality that we can live out. You got guys like um, uh, C.T. Studd. You know, he was a missionary under Hudson Taylor, in China, and then he went to India, and then he went to Africa, and he read the scriptures, and he said, if it says that the promise of God is a filling of the Holy Spirit, and that in his name and in his strength we can go off and see the world change, then I'm going there. And so even though he was denied by a mission organization to go to Africa, he still went. And they said, oh, no white man can live in the middle of Africa more than two weeks. And he was there for 20 years, you know, changing the culture of Central Africa. So you end up with these people that really do grab hold of the scriptures and they really do make a powerful impact in the world around us. Why? Because they embrace the whole truth of the Bible. And that's one important point is it is a whole truth. Whenever we talk about food, dietitians will tell you, oh, you have to have a well-balanced diet. You have to make sure that you're eating your vegetables and you're eating your fruit and you're eating protein and you're getting the right fats in your body, carbohydrates and things like that. Make sure they're proportionally balanced. Make sure that you're not overdoing one thing or the other because if you do, then you're equilibrium will be off and you can there's people out there that swear that oh I healed myself from some skin condition or from some whatever because I just I changed my diet I cut out this I cut out that for a while and then it ended up you know sorting out my body and things like that so I could go on and on about this kind of stuff but I'm saying all that to say that you look at someone like Daniel And Daniel refused the delicacies of the king's table. He wouldn't eat that which the world threw at him. The ideas, the ideologies, the philosophies, the the wisdom of the world. He said, no, I'm only going to eat that which is basically 
basic. <laughs> and in the eyes of, of all of those around him, it was, you're just eating vegetables. You're just eating fruit. I mean, what's going on, Daniel? You're not eating the, the, the stuff, the, the high-end delicacies, the high-end culinary delights provided by the king of Babylon. And Daniel says, no, I'm going to eat in what their eyes was, is I'm just going to eat basic food. And so this relationship between Daniel's choosing of the basic and his uh, testimony of, the, of those who were responsible for him, that he was 10 times better. He was 10 times better than all of those of Babylon. Why? Because he went for something that was of the Lord. He would not defile himself with what was coming from the king's table. The idea, I mean, and I'm, I'm making this into the spiritual application, the ideologies and the, the wisdom and the mindset and the, the ideas of the world that seem to, quote, make sense. These things only make sense on a worldly level. When you get to a spiritual level, then they don't make sense anymore. They're actually dangerous. And in God's way of doing things, it's all turned around the opposite direction so that the things of the world become foolishness, but the things of him, which look stupid, actually become wise. So read 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. Read Daniel chapter 1. Read Exodus 16. Be challenged in yourself to say, when I am eating food, how am I eating the scriptures? How am I reading the word of God? How am I letting it transform my mind into the mind of Christ? These are the things that, oh, I closed my exercise ring. <laughs> so these are the things that we have to bear in mind. So I leave you with this challenge. Are you eating? And if so, I hope you are. Are you eating right and well and proper in order to be a reflection of who God is in this world through Jesus Christ and in the power of his spirit? So God bless you. If you'd like to support this podcast, please click links on the podcast page, and we'll see you again next time. God bless. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you were challenged and encouraged by what you heard today, please feel free to share it with any friends or family you like. You're welcome to email us at calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. That's calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. And remember to leave a comment at iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts.